now, the Asheville Museum of Science presents 7-Minute Science, powered by the828.com. Welcome back to 7-Minute Science, a podcast for the curious. Each episode, we answer those science questions you may have wondered about in 7 minutes or less with the help of an expert. I'm Ken from the828.com. Hi, Ken. I'm Corey with the Asheville Museum of Science. 7-Minute Science is a great way to learn something new while you're walking the dog, eating a sandwich, or in need of some fun party trivia. Thank you for joining us as we get ready to learn something new today. This is going to make you the most interesting guest at your Halloween party. Uh, The evening of frights and tricks and treats fast approaching. We're going to delve into the world of fear. This week, we're going to find out how our brains process fear. So we've enlisted the help of Dr. Michael Nealon, Associate Professor of Psychology at UNC Asheville. Dr. Nealon received a BA in Linguistics from Pomona College in California and a PhD in Psychology from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. He spent a few years after that as a postdoctoral researcher with a neurosurgeon recording electrical responses directly from human cortex in patients undergoing surgery for epilepsy, excuse me, and then joined UNC Asheville in 2006, where he teaches courses in neuroscience, cognitive psychology, and research methods, among many other more specific topics. Dr. Nealon, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Michael, can you do this without hooking up electrodes to our brains? Is that necessary? (laughs) You know, I do some research like that. So if you're interested, I can hook you up sometime. Oh, we'll talk. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Let's talk afterwards. So Corey and I are going to attempt to learn as much as we can from you in seven minutes. We're going to pepper you with some questions, uh, soak in all of your knowledge, (laughs) and then when the time clock's up, we're going to try to teach it all back to you, and you're going to tell us how well we do, and if all goes to plan... We'll be nearly as smart as you, as smart as we can possibly <laughs> be. It's a low bar, so you guys, you guys are going to be okay. Fantastic. Uh, so are we ready to go? Let's do this. Let's start the clock. All right. So let's start with what is happening to our bodies when our, we first respond to fear. So when that first stimuli happens, what's happening? Yeah, well, you know, I like to think about the brain as sort of a system of different levels, sort of like in a corporation or the government. And so the very primitive level are the nerves that innervate your heart and your lungs, etc. There's a really ancient evolutionarily old system that tells the body to immobilize itself. And that's where we get feigning, death, and um, you know, when you have that moment of or an animal's play dead, etc. It comes from, you know, really ancient vertebrates. Um, if you really want to get yourself scared, you should look up hagfish. Hagfish is one of the most primitive vertebrates and it's basically just, it's a, it looks like a big worm and it has a hole for a mouth that it can't even close, it just has teeth on it, and it feeds on dead bodies at the bottom of the ocean. And if you try to attack it, it releases all this slime. <laughs> that sounds like a delightful. It, it is. You should look up YouTube videos of hagfish slime. So there, um, but so these animals um, have this really ancient system, and then so do sharks, and then um, and so they can basically stop their heart when they enter into cold water, but they can also do that when they are attacked as well. And that system has remained with us all, you know, through the eons. And so even mammals, even us have this system as well. And I think that's one reason why people say, well, why is it that when we're, you know, frightened, instead of running away immediately, we have this moment of shock. Well, part of it might be that system sort of taking over. Um, On top of that, then we have another system, which was the fight or flight system. And that also innervates your, you know, heart and your lungs and and it prepares you to deal with stresses and to fight things that attack you. Animals probably started developing this maybe around the time of bony fish. So think about Finding Nemo. You know, how do those fish behave? They can 
dart around and they can freeze. So they have two of those systems that they can kind of control back and forth. And then on top of that, we have another system that allows us to communicate socially. But all of the systems remain with us. So when we encounter a threat, um, you know, the first thing would probably be let's try some sort of cognitive assessment of it. If it's a really frightening or immediate threat, we might kick in this um, fight or flight aspect of our nervous system. It's called the sympathetic division of the autonomic nervous system. But if that itself also fails, then we can even experience the really ancient system of immobilization. Is there a specific part of the brain where all of this is going down? Can you yeah. isolate a specific quadrant? Well, it, uh, there are some really important structures that you might be familiar with. But again, I think it's important to think of the brain as sort of this layers that were added on through evolution. So, you know, you talk about the nerves that innervate the body, the spinal cord, the brain stem, all vertebrates have that to keep your body alive. And then we started adding things on. I kind of think of it like a mushroom, right? So you have the stem of the mushroom as your brain stem, and then you start adding these layers. And so all of those are involved in all of our behaviors. We can't really say that just one part of the brain controls everything. Then say they talk to each other. But some important structures include a, a structure called the amygdala, which is if you could press your finger through your temple into sort of the middle part of your brain, mm -hmm. that's where you would find this structure and some people think of it as a fear structure. So it is activated when you encounter threatening things. Although, interestingly, we're finding out it's actually more about maybe emotionally intense stimuli. So, for example, um, you know, we get goosebumps when we're frightened of things. But you can also get goosebumps when you listen to really intense music, right? And think about a really powerful passage of music. You get those shivers, right? That's your amygdala as well. It happens every time I put on a Michael Bolton CD. <laughs> well, we don't know. That could be fear as well. Um, right. So, but nonetheless, that's your amygdala. So it's active both when something is threatening, but also when something is exciting as well. You know, let's say that a, a stimulus normally wouldn't bother you, an elevator or a stairwell. Well, then you get trapped in an elevator, right? Or, you know, if you read about cases of people who survived 9-11, you know, and they escape by going down stairwells, they become suddenly really afraid or they have panic attacks in those moments of re-encountering those stimuli. Your amygdala has associated that neutral stimulus with a fear response. So that's probably its most important function. Um, now, there are some other structures on top of the amygdala as well that try to help control the amygdala so that we're not constantly being afraid of things. We're not constantly responding to emotionally to things. And under normal circumstances, that works well under, you know, cases of probably certain illnesses. Um, people are not able to control that very well anymore. You know, you might think of PTSD or phobias as examples of this system kind of running amok a little bit and we can't control it anymore. But that's a really important brain structure. When we first encounter a stimuli, is the first body reaction to that, does that go to the amygdala or does it, yeah. what happens? You know, that's, a, that's actually a long-standing debate in emotion, mm. which is, does your body react first and then your mind labels it as an emotion? Or do your mind have to label something as bad or good and then it can tell what the body tell the body what to do. Um, and I think we've all experienced a case of something really sudden happening where our body reacts much faster than what we can realize what's going on, which is probably a good thing, right? I mean, think about, you know, if you drop your dish or if, you know, heaven forbid you're in a car accident and you or somebody stops in front of you, you know, those reactions happen before you're even consciously aware of what you're doing. So that's one theory of emotion is that there are structures that can perceive these threats even quicker than you can consciously label them. The amygdala is one of them, right? So it has inputs from sensory systems. In fact, all of your sensory, basically, not just sight, but hearing and smell. 
and it can make those decisions really quickly or, or activate those lower level systems so that you respond to the threat even quicker than you can consciously label it. How does the brain process fear that is real and fear that is in a movie or even fear <laughs> that is in a dream? So, you know, the body doesn't really know the difference. The brain, so higher parts of the brain, we'll call it the mind, the conscious parts where we have language and thought. Under normal circumstances, your conscious mind can help make sure your body's not going to overreact to things. Um, and that's how we normally can separate out imaginary things from things that are, you know, not real. But again, your body doesn't know the difference necessarily. So if your mind is not doing a good job of controlling that, then of course you can have the same kinds of stress reactions or fear reactions you would have to a real threat. So if you think about our modern world, you know, we live in a world in which all of our natural threats have really been removed. And so you would think we shouldn't be afraid of anything, right? But I don't think people would say that they aren't under stress these days. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of phobias. There's a lot of um, illnesses people have with irrational fears. So that it's still there. And unfortunately, what we sometimes do is we create our own. So the mind can actually work against us a little bit and we can think negative thoughts and we can build these things up and activate these systems in our body. So our body doesn't really know the difference between those those stimuli, but our mind can. And so a lot of therapy would be how do I help this person regain control of these systems? And certainly there are medications you can take to do that, but there are techniques that you can do to try to help the person regain that kind of control. Does that control come from the amygdala? Is that where you're trying to train? Um, so the amygdala does is part of that hierarchy, although it's not a conscious structure. So it's oh, still right. responding before you can control it. Instead, let's move up a little bit into the frontal lobe. So the frontal lobe is really probably the structure that is trying to either it's, you know, interpreting the signals it gets up so it can decide if this is something real or not and how should I respond to it. And then it also tries to control that as well. When right. I get scared, my heart starts to race. Yep. I feel like my muscles can, can twitch pretty fast. Right. What's happening there and, and which part of the brain is helping that response? Again, we can go back way back in time and, you know, really primitive animals like sharks and, and lampreys have a tissue that releases a chemical, and that was the precursor to what we know now as adrenaline and other neurotransmitters. So they just kind of release it systemically in their bodies, but over evolution, we've kind of collected into, into a structure called the adrenal gland that sits on top of your kidneys. And that's what releases adrenaline or epinephrine um, which is a form of, it's kind of a neurotransmitter. There are some that are more directly related to the brain itself. It also releases another stress hormone called cortisol. Adrenaline is more about immediate needs, right? So when you release it, it's helping your stimulate your muscles. It helps open up your breathing passage to get um, air. It stimulates your heart. Cortisol is something a little bit slower and more long-term. It's there to kind of convert energy stores in your liver and other stores into energy. And so it kind of keeps you in the state of constant level of readiness. Turns out that cortisol, a long-term exposure to it is not actually very healthy. And so this is one of the ironic bad things of the modern era. We, we, we piled stress and anxiety upon ourselves so that in some ways we're constantly activating the system. And then over time, it can start to affect things like our memory and our ability to control our emotional response. I think it's time to assess whether <laughs> Ken and I were listening. 
Let's well, okay, see great, if we great. can recap what we've learned. <laughs> this uh, part scares me. This part scares me. <laughs> there There's go. a lot of All information. Right, so this is a good example. What What is being activated right now as you're getting nervous? I feel a <laughs> bit like a hagfish. <laughs> I'm feeling haggish. I would say that <laughs> the first thing that's happening to us might be our the stimuli of fear because right now my heart is racing. <laughs> it's probably going to our amygdala. Is that correct? Okay, so your amygdala is probably being aware of the threat and it's telling lower-level systems to turn on. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, and a a lot of this is just baked into the cake. There's not a specific (laughs) part of the brain. It's layers that go back to uh, those primitive creatures that apparently I have not uh, fully evolved because (laughs) I don't like the scary movies. Uh, But but it it is really a primitive instinct, basically. And now that we are being put on the spot and – and our, our yeah, heart is racing. Right. Some of that is uh, my neurotransmitters being yeah. uh, activated and responding in right. that way. Is that correct? Right. So, you know, the nerves that innervate your heart and your lungs, that's the initial response to a threat. And so you can either respond by being paralyzed with fear or you can respond by saying this is a threatening situation. I need to run away, right, or fight. And you probably at this point are experiencing that second level. We call that the sympathetic division of the autonomic nervous system. That's what we feel probably when we're nervous, right? Heart rate racing and our mouth getting dry, et cetera. So I've definitely felt that. But now looking across the studio, I realize that I'm sitting with two great people. I don't have to <laughs> yeah, be afraid. Right, so that's right. the frontal lobe kicking in, right? Yeah, and, that's, and try and reason right. out that, hey, I don't actually need to be Your too frontal afraid. lobe and other structures like the hippocampus are there helping you say, okay, I know what's going on in the situation. I have good memories and those things can help modulate or, or, you know, reduce that activation of your stress response. And I'm still freaking out a little bit, so that <laughs> might mean that I need some therapy or, or some medications because some people need a little help kicking in that more yeah. rational part of the brain, correct? Yeah. Well, some people do. Um, you know, you remind me of there are people who are great performers and actors and they still get stage fright. Right. And so what is stage fright? That's another example of one of these older systems kicking in. That would probably be, again, the sympathetic division of the nervous system. So what happens during stage fright? You your heart starts racing. So you have trouble kind of keeping a constant breath that might affect your performance in terms of singing or talking. Um, You know, the most recent system of these things I'm talking about is involved in communication. That's so part of relaxing is your ability to say, now I can talk and I can express my facial I can move my facial muscle, muscles to make expressions. And so as mammals and especially as primates, we've done a really good job of developing that system so we communicate. But when you're under stress, the sympathetic division kicks in and suddenly you can't move those muscles in the same way anymore. You literally start to choke a little bit, right? You're not breathing as calmly as you were. And so that's a problem that I think performers still have. And there are drugs that sometimes you take. You know, there is drugs that will block the neurotransmitter norepinephrine in order to allow people to overcome stage fright. And there are uh, some people who actively seek scary movies or put themselves in <laughs> yeah, that that's right. because that's they right. like the adrenaline. Uh, they, they, yeah. they, because it, they adrenaline. Like but uh, too much of, of the, uh, I'm, I'm pulling back deep here, cortisol? That is also released as well, but you don't want to put yourself in those frightening situations too often because too much of that is not a good thing and can affect things such as uh, memory. Yeah, that's great. That was a great summary. That's right. So cortisol, when it lasts a long time, can be a a problem like that. All right, Dr. Michael, I'm ready to go see a scary movie, (laughs) but I need to know how do I control that fear? Right. So 
Um, one thing is that your frontal lobe can can be used. You can try to engage it to assess what's going on, to look at the information and try to figure out what's happening in your body. That will help kind of detach those feelings from what's happening so that you can kind of label it more properly. Um, now, if you want to do, if you have um, issues with uh, uncontrolled stress responses for a long period of time, let's say you were in an accident or in a really stressful situation and you can't control those feelings. Um, one approach is called exposure therapy. So we mentioned the amygdala as this learning structure. It learns to associate stimuli with something threatening. And so when you see those stimuli again, you get this threat response, this fear response. Well, if you can expose the amygdala to situations, those stimuli, but in controlled situations where they're not threatening, you can kind of erase that conditioning. And so that's known as exposure therapy. That can work. But if you're really desperate, one thing you could try is you could try injecting Botox into your face. Um, <laughs> really? Is, so there's one really interesting study in which they had people who had injected Botox try to express facial emotions. I don't know if you've well, ever uh, seen people. Uh, you'll you, know. You certainly won't look scared. You won't look scared. Well, it turns out we've mentioned the body is this vehicle for expressing emotion, and it's probably the base, the, the foundation for your emotional responses. If you can su- suppress the body from responding – the upper levels of your brain will say, well, I'm not getting any signal telling me that you're afraid. I guess you're not afraid. So no interestingly, wow. if you take, if you do fMRI measurements of the brain of people who have been injected with Botox, their amygdalas don't respond as strongly as people who have not been injected. So, oh my goodness. so now, interesting, there are some dermatologists who want to now argue that we should <laughs> we should treat people therapeutically with Botox because we'll just make the world a happier place, right? Except you won't be able to see anybody smile. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the trade-off. We'll have no expressions, but we also won't feel anything bad. Now, is this the same concept as I've heard that if, you, if you're feeling down in the dumps, all you have to do is smile for, for yes, a little bit? Yes, it's exactly the same idea. It's called the facial feedback hypothesis. Wow. So the, you know, the, the test they do is they have people with a pencil, and you either put it in your teeth like you're holding a dagger or you put it in your teeth um, forward so you have to purse your lips, right? And so if you're holding it like a dagger, you're sort of smiling, but you don't realize you're smiling. They have people then rate humorous things like cartoons. And the finding supposedly is that you rate those cartoons as funnier when you're, hold- when you're sort of smiling. Now, many of these studies, we always have to take this stuff with a grain of salt. You know, journals and the press really likes to talk about things that are funny and exciting and new and then we don't hear the follow-up which may not be as funny or as exciting so there's always questions with these kinds of findings but that is a well-known theory called the facial feedback hypothesis so smiling potentially could make you feel better if dr michael has enough letters behind his name where he can prescribe drugs i may go see it with you i'm still, I'm still not <laughs> quite to that i point. can't do that unfortunately <laughs> oh oh you're, you're, <laughs> you're on your own ha- we're gonna have to practice using our frontal lobes i think because uh, there you go that's right thank you dr michael nealon for teaching ken and i about our fear and our brains i think we're, we're gonna do this i think we're gonna go watch a scary movie <laughs> all right great uh, you, you gotta be prepared because all those it clowns are coming to your door to trick or treat <laughs> that's, that's like the, right that's like the hot costume so yeah. Um, at, at least uh, I can be prepared for that. Thank you so much, yeah, thank Dr. You Michael Nealon. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. I appreciate thank it. You. And that is this edition of 7 Minute Science. We'll see you next time.